0: Taking racial struggles to the throne of grace. United We Pray is a ministry devoted to praying about racial strife, especially between Christians. I'm the host, Isaac Adams. You're listening to season four of the show, and I have a guest here with us editorial director for the Gospel Coalition, author of Blind Spots, God Size Vision, and Young, Restless, Informed, and more importantly, ice cream connoisseur, the (laughs) one and only. Colin Hanson. What's good, Colin?
1: Hey, hey, Isaac. Uh, I'm glad you got all my uh, qualifications in there. All All your credentials? Most people leave out
0: the ice cream part. Well, hey. Uh, Is that the best intro you've ever received? I'm sure
1: it is. (laughs) is, Well, it's the most accurate one, I'll tell you that
0: much. (laughs) And you're also a pastor. I failed to mention that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Redeemer Community Church, Birmingham, Alabama. Serve as a lay elder, with, uh, but with what we expect of our elders, that means I get to spend a good bit of time in and around the church, which is just how I want it.
0: Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Colin, should we begin by telling the story of how we fell in love?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think it only makes sense
0: it uh, would be right. Okay. So uh, I live in DC and Colin's coming through DC. This is a few years ago and Colin's setting up meetings. I had written some things for TGC, I think, or whatever it may be. And uh, long story short, we had mutual friends and Colin hits me up for a meeting and I uh, I don't know if my listeners know this. I do not drink coffee. I actually despise the thing. It just like it tastes disgusting to me. And people always tell me to repent of that. And uh, I think that shows the idolatry in itself. So I. Uh I I say, Colin, let's go get coffee because I figure that's the adult thing that people like Colin would like to do. Uh, And Colin responds to my offer for coffee, uh, which I usually just get lemonade or something like that, hot chocolate. And Colin says, you know what? I'd really just prefer to get some ice cream. (laughs) And that's when I knew that this was not just a friend. This was a soulmate. And we went and we got ice cream and we had a a good old time didn't we Colin
1: life is too short for coffee i don't drink coffee <laughs> i don't drink alcohol i save those calories for ice cream there we go and so you, go. you know i just i have so many different meetings and like you many of them in coffee shops and i think i should do this more often let's just get ice cream there we go there we go well hey today is the uh
0: we're recording on the 12th of August. Uh, this will come out later, even maybe a couple months later. Um, but I was reading Proverbs 12 today. Uh, I just try to read a proverb with whatever day it is. Uh, and I just want to point out two verses. Uh, Proverbs 12:19 say, Truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. Then verse 22 says, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. But those who act faithfully are his delight. So, Colin, uh, I don't typically do this. I'm going to open this conversation with prayer and then we'll dive into some questions. All right, brother. So, let me pray for us in light of uh, what Proverbs had for us. Father, we do ask for your help in this time that we would have an honest, clear, and beneficial conversation, talking about matters, uh, Lord. And talking in such a way that it could endure and not last just for a moment. Father, we know that lying lips are an abomination to you. So we pray that even in what we say, we would act faithfully. And that that faithfulness would be pleasing to you, a delight to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Colin, you're from South Dakota. Uh, you look about as white as white can be. So then, my question is, <laughs> what led you to think deeply about race? Well,
1: in part, I don't live in South Dakota anymore. I live in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, and I go to I go to a church that's um, predominantly white in a uh, predominantly African American city, and I think between my interests in Uh, history as well as journalism, it means that wherever I'm traveling, I want to know that place's story. I want to know why it's there. I want to know what people love. I want to know what people hate. I want to know what makes people excited, what makes people scared. Um, I I just do that naturally. It's part of what I love doing. And so that made sense when I moved here seven years ago. I mean, I started visiting Birmingham going all the way back when my now wife and I were dating probably... Almost 20 years ago now, I was, I was in Birmingham during the September 11, 2001 attacks in the middle of college. And uh, so I've had a lot of time to be able to observe, but not until we moved in 2012 did I have a chance to really um, begin to think about what it's like for me to be a resident of this city. I remember my father-in-law saying, now, Colin, whenever people see what you write, they'll see Birmingham, Alabama in your biography, and they will make assumptions about you and it's interesting isaac that in my own self-identity i am i'm from south dakota i'm like michael scott said i'm like a I'm like a united nations you know i'm swedish i'm norwegian i'm danish <laughs> i'm welsh you see what i'm saying mm-hmm. and uh, yes, yes and and that that's that's my experience uh, my great grandparents were immigrants um and that's that's how i think of myself, growing up very self-consciously, especially Danish and Welsh. But that's not how people look at me now, because they don't know any of that. They know that I live in Birmingham and that I'm white. And it reminds me of when I first met my now wife, and I don't remember how many times we'd been together or whatever, talking, um, dating and things like that before. I was just asking, what's your, you know, what's your ethnic background? And she looked at me, and the question didn't make any sense to her. She says, I'd never been asked that question before. And I said, well, you know, everybody has this sort of background. Are you English? Are you German? Are you whatever? Where, where, where are you coming from? And she just looked at me and said, I'm white. <laughs> so, well, that's, that's obvious. But as I've come to understand more over time... That's especially true of places in the South and not only the South, but, but places where whiteness is an identity that's created as a, an explicit contrast to the other. And especially, of course, being black or colored or, or whatever terms have been used over time. And so I really started to get into a lot of history of the civil rights movement because it's the, it's the world that I live in. Here, I got into a lot of the history, of specifically of the of Birmingham. Began teaching other people about that, and I found that, especially for the church, a lot of the questions, specifically from Dr. King's letter from Birmingham Jail, remain oh, maybe even as pressing today as they were more than 50 years ago when he first wrote that letter. So that's that basic journey. But it is fascinating how—I'll just summarize it this way, Isaac. When you're in South Dakota and you're self-consciously, say, Norwegian in a county that's mostly Germans, or you're in a Danish town next door to a town of people from Ireland or something like that, it's very different uh, from when you drop into a Deep South context. And I'll put it this way. It's amazing how people from the outside can come in and what looks normal to everyone else is not normal to them, or what's, what's okay and accepted by everyone else is not okay and accepted by them. And I love Birmingham. I love living here. Um, and yet, as somebody who grew up a different place, lived in Chicago, New York, places like that and have worked in a number of different settings. It's very clear that there is something wrong in Birmingham that so much of what we've experienced in our past uh, never healed.
0: Mm. I want to I want to come back to that, Uh, but I want to tap on first what you talked about uh, in terms of education. So you've talked over uh, ice cream and many other uh, conversations. (laughs) You've told me we all have a role to play in this conversation about bringing about racial unity uh, and justice. And one role you've tried to pick up in Birmingham uh, is education. So who are you educating? And how are you educating them? Because you talked about how you've been educating yourself, reading history, right. your journalism background, because lots of folks just you were talking about, you know, well, I live in the South and lots of folks live in the South, but aren't educated on these things. So yeah. thoughts on who you, who are you educating and how?
1: Yeah, primarily, Isaac, I'm educating other white evangelicals. Um, They might be people who live in my predominantly white suburb. They might be people who live in the city. They're especially young people. Though I find that even people into their 60s and 70s, uh, even who lived through some of the civil rights movement, don't necessarily have a lot of knowledge of what happened there. And in our particular context, um the a lot of the mo- more explicit racial animus dissipated over time but then there became all these different kinds of narratives that set in and, and different timelines were were reset and and people then began to simply turn their back on and ignore that history and then they became pretty offended when somebody would bring it up And I do find though that some of the younger generations then don't—they don't have any of the lived experience of that era. They have been taught it, but not not, necessarily—it hasn't necessarily been localized. So what I've been trying to do is just to, to fill in some of those gaps. And let me give an illustration, Isaac, of of what that would look like. So you have a lot of talk in Birmingham about urban renewal and you don't necessarily hear a lot of talk of why it needs renewing and sometimes when you talk to older people they'll lament what happened in the city of birmingham they lament the the closed storefronts and the and the failing schools and things like that but a lot of the subtext is it's a shame what these people have done to this place that's the narrative that's pretty much assumed by people especially people living in the suburbs and so what I've been trying to do with education is to flip that narrative a little bit and to say, what exactly did you expect to happen here? What, what do you think happens in any community when all of its social capital disappears, when the people simply leave? Uh, which is the case certainly of Birmingham and of so many different places. I was just doing some research this morning on Memphis and found the same things. Just if you want to try an exercise, and I know this is obvious probably to many people listening on this podcast, but just do an exercise, use Wikipedia, look up any given town, especially suburban towns in the South, and look to see when its population grew. Just look to see what kind of population Was there. And it's amazing what 100, 200, 300, 400% jumps you'll see in the 1960s, the 1970s, and the 1980s. So, my role to play is education, especially with white evangelicals. Um, I find that, especially for African Americans, a lot of my insights are things that they either already know (laughs) um, or things that don't necessarily help them or empower them to be able to do what God has called them to do to serve their communities so my audience tend to be people of faith especially evangelicals who are white
0: another response thank you for that um i'm grateful for the work you've been doing brother yeah many things i could say about that um but thank you for the educating work you've been doing uh you have a longer talk i'll put in the show notes that was a talk you gave to your congregation about the history of birmingham um And you also gave another talk at the MLK50 conference. I know you had, obviously, a big role in planning that. Uh, Another response to ensuring justice is ensuring the health of churches, Colin. This is something we've talked about. Uh, So part of ensuring that health is making sure the members of our churches are Christians. Can you talk about what membership roles and racism have to do with each other? (laughs) And any examples from Birmingham specifically?
1: Love that question. And I'm glad you connected it back to MLK 50 because I had a talk on the church's history with segregation prepared for that event. Um, And as I began to see who was coming into the session, you know, you don't get a list of the people coming, and even if you did, you wouldn't necessarily know them. And as I began to see some of the people coming in, I I don't know if the the spirit was simply prompting me to be able to pursue a little bit of a different tactic, but I really began to focus on some of those concepts that We reformed folks really love to talk about things like regenerate church membership and things like biblical church discipline. And I overlaid that within the history of the South and specifically looking at the history of Birmingham and specifically within Birmingham at First Baptist Church of Birmingham. Now, a lot of people know that Baptist churches, and it's not just Baptist churches, you could go all over the place with this, but it's odd for Baptist churches given. Our assumptions as Baptists about discipline and membership, but many of them know that you might have, say, three hundred people attend your church, but you might have a thousand members. Okay. Well, imagine what happens if it's the 1960s and your First Baptist Church of Birmingham, and I don't know exactly what the attendance membership numbers would have been then, but let's also introduce the concept for some people who may not know of the need for the current members of the church to be able to affirm by a certain percentage vote the new members to enter into that church. So First Baptist Church of Birmingham, that threshold was 75%. Now you're introducing in the 1970s your first African American members. Uh, Given the history of First Baptist Birmingham, very high-profile place, as you would imagine. Andrew Young, who would go on to be the UN ambassador from the United States, the mayor of Atlanta, U.S. congressman from Atlanta, was one of the first African Americans to integrate that church. It was on Easter in 1963 in conjunction with King's movement there. The pastor allowed him to come in. The pastor was later fired. For that, that pastor was commended by King and Letter from Birmingham Jail for making that move to allow him to come in. But then the building where my church now meets, the old South Avondale Baptist Church location, they took preemptive action and it went ahead and banned African-Americans from coming. So go back to First Baptist Birmingham. Their situation is that when African-Americans come forward into the 1970s, even into the 1980s, they can't get 75 percent support. Now, they might get 72, they might get 74, but they couldn't get 75%. Well, why does that happen? Well, it happens for a number of different reasons, but among them, because you don't have a regenerate church membership, meaning you have some inactive members, and active members to be clear, but some inactive members who have never been disciplined, who turn out to be able to vote in a situation like this to be able to keep African Americans out. And without that Church discipline. Well, you can see how it exacerbates the problem now. And what does that failure to follow through on our basic commitments to discipline and membership? What does it do for the integrity of the church? What does it do for the community and the witness toward Christ? Um, You're not going to find any of this history on the website for First Baptist of Birmingham. And yet, somehow, I mean, I could practically throw a baseball and hit First Baptist Church of Birmingham right now from where I'm sitting. That church's witness has been compromised, and everybody knows it, even if they don't know the history. They know something's wrong there. And so whatever people thought they were protecting the church at the time were actually killing the church because they were not faithfully following through on their basic uh, requirements as members and as leaders of that church. So in response to your question, I mean, I think those concepts are very important and I think often, often overlooked in these conversations about civil rights and desegregation and and ongoing uh, race-related issues today.
0: Yeah, and so, you know, just talking about, because there's so many, Mm -hmm. it can be overwhelming, and I think a common uh, question, especially from white brothers and sisters, is, you know, what do you want me to do? And people are looking uh, for, and even sincerely asking that question some ask it of course uh insincerely uh, uh, but some ask you know what should i do and they're looking for these profound answers and it's like well if you if you go about the basics of what christ has commanded his church to be like to be uh to be pursuing you know healthy membership in that sense, it's like, well, if the racists are off the rolls, then the church is going to look really different. Uh, And it's going to be forcing different conversations within the church. And and that matters on who can be in the church and and its witness, uh, as you showed.
1: Or if people who flagrantly violate James's command to not show partiality are not disciplined, in your, or our discipline, then your church is also going to look very different. And that is, I'll put it this way, Isaac, a lot of people wonder, why are we talking about this history? Well, maybe, maybe people listening here, maybe other people don't live in places where these things continue to affect your everyday life. I do. Um, I live in a place where it affects just about everything that happens here, and it affects our churches deeply. To this day, whether people acknowledge it or not. That's a fact. Our churches have different dynamics here than than churches do in some other places, and it's directly related to those decisions that many people who are still living today had made, and to be clear, decisions that there has been no sort of citywide effort to repent of. So maybe there's some sort of explicit assumption that time has simply healed, uh, all these wounds, or that time has simply made the sin go away so that we don't need to repent of it, or we can just blame our racist grandparents or great-grandparents and um, or whatever, but the bottom line is it's still an issue. Um, whether or not it, it's well, not the same, but it is still affecting us.
0: Well, and Colin, just to hop in, so hopping in on that then, uh, because you and I have talked about how one response is people love talking about this conversation in some sense because they, it feels good to just blame the racist grandparents, right? Right. It's a form of self-righteousness, like, at least I'm not like them. Uh, And we know from the scriptures how uh, God's perspective uh, is on the person who says, Lord, thank you that I'm not like them. So there's that. Um, And I want to ask you about... um, uh, Oh goodness, uh, 16th, where you took us on our tour, where we started. 16th Street Baptist Church. 16th Street Baptist Church. But before we get there, uh, Colin, just give me a specific example of what has not healed and how you have seen it in your day-to-day life, just Birmingham in your context. You're talking about these things that affect your everyday life and the dynamics of your churches. And I I appreciate this word you're using, healed, because we're talking about wounds. Which means something has been inflicted uh, and you're saying, you know, you you began by saying this, just this whole interview, you know, even some of those questions that King raises are still as applicable today. So give me an example of that and then we'll come back to 16th Street Baptist Church uh, because it goes back to the membership question we were talking about.
1: So this is an actual scenario that's happened to me in the last month. Okay. And this is not uncommon So just to be clear, and I'm not going out of my way to talk about these things necessarily, to incite this sort of response. I'm not trying to excavate this. Anyway... Here's the scenario.
0: You're just the friendly neighborhood editor who's eating his ice cream, living his <laughs> life. Yes, we <laughs> That's got it. Right. Okay,
1: and <laughs> sitting in a new member interview uh, where we work through things like why are you joining our church, and what is the gospel, and have you been baptized, right. and, and things like that. Right. Okay. So I'm sitting. I down. have a
0: similar kind of interview later this afternoon okay. that I'll be hosting.
1: There you go. So, so wonderful, godly young couple. Um, they are joining our church and they've got a lot of questions. Their, their mind is, is, is swirling with a lot of experiences. They're in their young 20s, um, newly married. They come from a small town in Alabama. Birmingham for them is the big city. They're making their way in the big city. And they talk about how they joined our church in part because they saw that we were addressing these issues and they thought well we need a church where we where we can get some help because this is our situation. We grew up in a small town in Alabama where all the African Americans went to the public school and all of the white people went to the Christian school. Of course a Christian mm-hmm. school that came in the rise of desegregation in the 1970s. In that school system, they talk about how they. Meaning were, it was started as an, as an, right. a way
0: to. Yes. They're, okay. they're, it was they're started as commonly, a way to not have to deal with. Commonly called
1: segregation or seg academies. Okay. So, and this is common. This is common in the state of Alabama. I don't know how many other places it's common, but it's very common to this day. The city, the, the town in Alabama that my wife's family, going back generations, comes from, it's the same situation in their town so they come and they're talking to me about just what it was like for them growing up and they were taught that there were some some good black people but that namely people who worked for them um, and worked with their families and then most other black people were were bad and that they were to be avoided um you just couldn't trust them and then they go to college, and for the first time they really encounter within Alabama, they, they encounter other, they encounter African Americans as peers. And they realize: wait a minute, the categories that I've been given don't really add up here. This doesn't make sense. Like I'm learning a lot from them. They seem like normal people. Um, what's going on here? And they're they work through that, they come to the big city, they come to Birmingham, and they think. Well, maybe that's just our small town. I'm sure cities don't have problems like this. That, that's, just, that's just life for us in the small town. So they come to the city. She gets a job teaching preschool special ed at a city school. And she finds as a white woman, as a white teacher, that the black parents don't want their kids to be working with her. And she's torn up about this. She doesn't understand. She goes to one of her black colleagues. Keep in mind, almost all of her colleagues are black. She goes to one of her black colleagues and says, can you explain what's happening here? And the woman says, yes. African-Americans in Birmingham teach their children that they can't trust white people um, and that white people will turn their back on you. They'll throw you under the bus at the first opportunity. And that's why they don't want you to be working with them. Now, over time, actually, things seem to have gotten a little bit better. And yes, the parents do see, okay, she's not she's not that bad. They'll let her work with their kids and things like that. But she's sitting there just looking at me as an, as an elder in her church, just saying, what do I do? Like, how do I process any of this? Uh, what, what does it mean? What does the, the gospel mean in the most churched city in America where Isaac, as I was thinking through this story, I thought, oh, I've heard a similar situation to that before. It's when I was in Israel. And this is what happens between Israelis and and Palestinians of the way children are raised in a certain way with that mutual distrust. We live in the most churched, as I said, most Bible-minded city in America, where that's how not all, many whites and blacks view each other as Christians, as devoted Christians, as church-going Christians and there are not as many uh, churches as you might think that are willing to really dig in and address those problems explicitly. Now, to be clear, there are more churches than there used to be that are doing that, and I can give specific names and specific places that are really dealing with this head-on, including our own, but that's just—I'm not going looking for that. That's what's coming to me as a spiritual concern for the members of my church, And that's today. That's 2019. That's not 1963. Uh, Yes, we've made progress in a lot of different ways, but that's still an issue for me today.
0: Thank you. That's exactly what I was trying to hear from you, brother. It's a helpful example. So let's go back to, um, and then I have one more question for you, and then I want to pray about these matters uh, because you're you're talking about, you know, the spiritual concern that's being raised, and then we want to raise them that, to the Lord. Uh, of course, there's much more to be done, and we at least want to begin with prayer. Um, so, Colin, then take me back to 16th Street Baptist Church, uh, because you recently took me and the rest of the pastoral staff that I'm on, on a tour of Birmingham, uh, and you talked about the bombing there uh, happened in 1963. Uh, was it September of 1963?
1: Yes, yeah, September. Yep, September.
0: So those four little girls are tragically murdered. Um, And the bomber himself was a member of a church. I mean, let's connect this back to the conversation we were just having, lest anyone think that this doesn't have vital ramifications or are we just nerding out on church membership? Like. Can make that connection for me.
1: Yeah. So specifically in that particular incident, you had four bombers, uh, three of whom were eventually brought to justice anywhere between 1977 and 2002. I actually don't know the spiritual condition or profession or even church affiliation of those men. um, Now, to be clear, it would have been exceedingly uncommon for someone of their demographic profile and things like that to not be attached to some sort of church and likely to what we would describe today as an evangelical church. Okay, that's just the basic. Probably what we're thinking about here would be Bull Connor. Uh, Bull Connor, as the police commissioner who would have been in charge of the fire hoses and the police dogs and all the different stuff of the vivid imagery then of 1963, um, belonged to Woodlawn United Methodist Church. Um, Woodlawn United Methodist Church is actually where my congregation had met for a number of different years in their Sunday school building. It was fairly typically one of those churches that emptied out largely during a desegregation of the 1960s and 1970s. The situation at Woodlawn High School next door was so fraught uh, 19 years after Brown versus Board of Education into the 1970s that there was actually a movie made um, about that situation called Woodlawn, came out in 2015. But I think that's, uh, I'll put it in this way, uh, Isaac, when You think about Bull Connor and and what he might have been hearing, and actually the Methodists did tend to be a little bit more progressive than the Baptists at that time, Uh, their clergy. I think that had something to do with the fact that Methodists serve at the will of their superintendents and their bishops, not the congregation, which is the way it is, of course, with Baptists, so that created a little bit of security for them. But still, the pastor there was forced out and in a number of other Methodist churches. But this is what is so sobering Isaac, that the illustration there with um, Bull Connor helps us to see is that when you imagine that period of 20 years of racial integration in Birmingham, you see the, the football teams change, which is what we really care about in Alabama. The schools change. Um, the military would change. All of these through the power of the bayonet, through the force of the state and by state, I mean, in this case, the federal government uh, for the most part, say, football integration would have been voluntary, but uh, the other things would have been mandatory by force. Um, what's what's really sobering is to take a step back and think, when people had all those other things taken away from them, what did they do? And what they did is rather than, pursue integration. They, in most cases, simply left. And in some cases, Isaac, they simply moved churches. They just literally relocated their congregations to a different setting. And also, churches then became a bulwark of ongoing resistance um, because the federal government can't mandate anything in your churches. Um, not related to racial integration and things like that. So, for example, when um, David Dockery talks about this, the former president of Union University and Trinity International University, he's a Birmingham native. He went to Fairfield High School. When his class was integrated in the late 1960s, almost all of the white students walked out of their high school graduation. And where did they meet for their own whites only graduation? They met in a Southern Baptist church. That's what's so sobering, is to think this place where Jew and Gentile, uh, slave and free, have been called together by the gospel to worship the risen Lord became a force that pulled people further apart instead of bringing them together. And these were many churches that believed in the inerrancy of Scripture, who preached the gospel of grace. That's what's so scary. About that situation, and why I believe it's so urgent for us to continue to address these questions that come to us in these pastoral situations still today. So, I think that's probably what you were asking about, but that's yeah, yeah,
0: that's that's exactly. And I remember you talking, yeah, and it started with that bombing, but I remember you then talking about the likelihood of those men. But I think the Bull Connor example shows uh the horror of what you're talking i mean it's just like this is the exact opposite of what churches should be doing and modeling and presenting to the world and it's like it's like someone has broke in and the the castle that's supposed to be a a light on the hill uh is a is a place of darkness and a force of darkness isn't that what Um, satan
1: would do I mean, they, they, they we're talking yeah, about this just... spiritual dimension here of, of, of lifting up in prayer these concerns that cannot be solved apart from the gospel, which isn't to mean to say that the gospel is the only means that we bring to bear on these questions, but they cannot be solved ultimately apart from the risen Lord. And so, what, what, what would be more typical of Satan that he would take the one way that we can move forward and he would twist it so completely around? And make it a source of furthering the very divisions. That's certainly and a cause for prayer.
0: Amen. And we're experiencing that exactly today, whether it be yeah. the Twitter sphere, whether it just be in uh, within congregations. So before we pray, because we're going to do that, and there's the spiritual shiver you're sending down my spine, uh, makes me want to just skip this question. But I think it's important, Colin, uh, because you're talking about these churches being. Uh, in some senses, on paper, orthodox, faithful, gospel-preaching churches. Uh, and you were talking about how even this cannot be ultimately solved apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet, so often in this conversation, a response that white brothers and sisters will give is just preach the gospel. And you've said that's not enough. Uh, we also have to preach the Great Commission. Am I quoting you right? And if so, what yeah. do you mean?
1: Well, I think there's a couple different ways to look at that, Isaac. One way to look at it would be that we need both the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. So, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If Christians in the 1960s in Birmingham, Alabama loved their neighbors as ourselves, you and I would be having a very different conversation We could simply
0: just enjoy ice cream, yes
1: yeah exactly and if, if if that were happening today as well, then that we might not have seen the need for this podcast in the same way so that's there's one way to look at it between commandment and uh, commission, but another way to think about it with the great commission is this. Um, and Colin, so just to be clear, of, what text are we yeah. talking about when we're talking about Great Commandment? Well, Matthew 28, 18. I mean, that's or 18 to 20. That's what we're looking for with the with the Great Commission there. So the very end of the first gospel. So, um, I mean, you, you could also throw in there with the Great Commission, teaching teaching them to obey everything I have commanded, which includes, of course, the Great Commandment, earlier or as my church is going through right now the sermon on the mount i mean there's plenty of resources is in the sermon on the mount to be able to deal with these issues it's not that we so much need all these other sources from outside the church to be able to see it's that for some reason so many of us are not even living up to the most explicit commands of scripture. But I think uh, think the great
0: great commandment being Matthew 22, 34 to 40, and then great requirement. Even people would talk about Micah 6, eight. And of course people are going to start asking about the covenant and the differences between that, but let's just stick with new Testament Matthew 22. Go ahead.
1: Perfect. So I think one way to put it is that I think when we, when you focus on reconciliation and on the strife, sometimes you just end up going in a circle. And I know this illustration is probably not gonna work as well on this podcast as it works in Birmingham, Alabama. But when you think about how does racial integration progress so well in some areas and so poorly in other areas, it tends to be because both sides realize they need each other and they serve a greater cause than themselves. Now, this is how pathetic that can be. That cause can be football. That cause can be when well, we need each other to be successful and we need to be able to work together and we're not going to win unless we have each other. That could be the story of Bear Bryant integrating the University of Alabama football team going back to the 1970s. The legend has it that he actually brought a team from Southern Cal to be able to come in with an African-American running back to beat his all-white team so that the state would realize that they need to integrate. That's how kind of pathetic it is, but I think the Great Commission can be a catalyst for us to be able to see we need each other and we serve a cause greater than ourselves. And we're not going to reach our cities. We're not going to reach this world. We're not going to give God the glory that He deserves unless we come together and we work together on these things and it doesn't mean to erase our theological distinctions it doesn't mean to erase even some of the some of the other things that would be, be, that would divide us but it is to relativize some of those cultural divisions at least to be able to say can't we can't we lay down some of our privileges which is the principle of contextualization that Paul himself followed. It's not about just sort of, you know, making yourself look like everyone else. It's about laying down your preferences for the sake of reaching other people. What would it look like, Isaac, if we put the Great Commission, the glory of Jesus Christ, the spread of the gospel by the power of the Spirit as revealed in the Word, what if we put that as our goal and said, then we need each other? to be able to do this and we're going to work together because that's our ultimate goal. And yes, we'll talk about reconciliation. Yes, we'll talk about the strife because you have to deal honestly about those things. We're going to keep our focus on God because he's the only one who's going to get us through this.
0: Amen, brother. Well, I think, uh, if God is the only one who's going to get us through this, then we need to take these things to him. So I would love it if you opened us in prayer. Uh, it's a joy to talk to you as always. Uh, and then I'll close this, brother. So you can pick up any of the things we've talked about
1: <laughs> uh, here <laughs> and pray for them, and then I'll close. Let's pray. Lord, um, you've give us, you give us words to be able to teach and to be able to lead. Um, you give us your word, which is truth. Your word is salvation. Your word speaks life out of death. And yet, Lord, we... We so eagerly long to see your word and your power pervade everywhere, to pervade our, our churches and to pervade our everyday lives and our interactions and to bring revival to our cities and to to bear a distinct witness to the gospel to the point where people look at our assemblies and see only the gospel, only God, only the Christian God, the only true God there is can bring these people together together. Nothing else can explain why these people have come together to worship. And see, help us, Lord, to have our neighbors say, look at how they love one another. And, and Jesus, we know that that is the prayer that you have offered yourself uh, before the Father, a prayer of unity, a prayer that we would be characterized and known by our love for one another and God I pray that in in the course of this process that you would help those people in positions of power and authority and influence and privilege to follow the course of your of your son Jesus and to lay their lives down to make themselves nothing but, but to say I will not let any personal preference or privilege get in the way of this wonderful work of redemption in this world and Lord I pray that you would help those people who are feeling so discouraged and they are feeling so uh, abused and and so uh, harmed by the ongoing effects of these things to be able to find beauty and dignity in being made image bearers whether they believe or not but that they're made in your image God and I pray that you would also bring many of them to salvation and continue to witness to what we find to be the most amazing fact that somehow out of all of this difficulty and strife and pain that you have made, you have, you've called a church to yourself among the nations, including of many minorities who have suffered so greatly. And yet, Lord, your testimony resounds. Your testimony of grace resounds through their experiences and through their witness even today. And I thank you, God, for that, especially for the churches of my own community, for those people who have stood and paid the price to witness to your truth and to your grace with your courage as people made in the image of God. I pray, Lord, that even a podcast like this would be a catalyst for people to take action to take action, not in their own strength, not in the wisdom of the world, but in the power of the Word and in the power of the Spirit. I pray, Lord, that you would do that and that you would get much glory and acclaim throughout that process. Amen.
0: Father, we come to you. As children come to their father, children who know the limits or who feel the limits of their wisdom, of their strength, and we ask for help. Father, help with the things we've been talking about today. Help to see them more clearly in our lives. Help to see all the way wounds are still festering and seem infected and seem to be getting worse, help to see the way wounds are healing and ways we can praise you and glorify you for progress that has been made. And yet Lord, we still ask for more progress. We ask that churches wouldn't be churches in America, specifically uh, in the South, Father, the, they wouldn't be forces of darkness when it comes to this conversation. Father, we pray that we would have more of the spirit of First Corinthians 9 within us. That we would make ourselves servants to all, that we might win more of them. Uh, Father, even as Paul, the Hebrew of Hebrews, even as he says he became as a Jew order to win others, Lord. He says he did it all for the sake of the gospel that he may share with them in its blessings. Father, we want to share in that blessing, that blessing you told Abraham about when you said to him, through him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And yet so often, Father, it feels like we are cursed in this conversation and in this world. Dealing with these matters. It feels like we are in Babel, speaking different languages, full of strife, hating one another. And in so doing, sinning against and hating you. For Lord, that is the result. But we don't obey your word to love one another as we love ourselves. And yet, Lord, we think of Christians uh, and the way they relate to other Christians on this issue. Lord, Uh, it was the Lord Jesus who gave us a new commandment. As he has loved us, he said, making that commandment new. He took an old commandment and added that as he has loved us, so we ought to love one another. Father, help us to meditate on all the ways Christ has loved us on all that he gave up to love us. And may we in turn love others in that way. It's in Jesus name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Colin, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we have, uh, I have, I'll put in the show notes, uh, a link to your talk. I wrote an article uh, called more, more Christian than black or white. It talks about some of what you were talking about with Paul, uh, giving up, uh, his identity and thinking through things like that. Uh, folks, we have a new website that you can check out. We're going to, we have articles, uh, that we're releasing. You can sign up for a newsletter and we're going to be pushing you to helpful resources on race. Uh, Colin Hanson joining us, brother. Thank you so much. Anything else you want to add, Colin?
1: No, I just appreciate you guys doing this. I appreciate your heart behind this. And I believe that the Lord hears and answers our prayers.
0: Amen. Amen. That is our hope. Grace and peace, beloved. We'll see you next time.